Good day and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. Today is December 23rd, 2019, Christmas Eve Eve. I'm your host, Hank Felsman. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast where we talk about climate change and how it affects us in our social lives and professional lives, how it affects us psychologically and as a practical matter that holds profound influence over how we view and plan for the future, including the prospect of home ownership, marriage, children, and investing in friendship. We talk about climate change because in 2019, at the time that my voice right here and now is being recorded, we simply do not talk about climate change enough, which is to say, we do not talk about it with the frequency and urgency that is consistent with it being the greatest problem of our day. No one likes to talk about climate change at parties or the coffee machine in the break room. So we talk about it here because we must. Because if not here, and if not us, then we are but silent sitting ducks. And while sitting ducks, we may still be at the mercy of the UN or the Russian election hacking farms. We will not be silent. We will quack. We will speak truth. We will talk and talk and quack and talk about climate change. How can we adapt so that humanity may survive? How can we clean our room, our proverbial room, reorganize it to make it more livable, hospitable? Will wild elephants still run free when I am 64? Today we have a very special guest for you, Miles Owings. He is an environmental planner right here in Philadelphia. Lots to talk about with him. He's probably the biggest expert on climate change we've had on this show, so very thrilled and an honor to have Miles with us here today in studio. But first, we've got to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Easy Breezy Green, the Philadelphia region's leader in wind-powered ceiling fans. You heard that right. From the windswept Poconos to your city row house ceiling, Easy Breezy Green ceiling fans powered exclusively by wind. Needless to say, put the cool in climate change. And of course, we also have to thank our sponsor, Roland Cases, the most rocket suitcases on wheels. Why go through the trouble of carrying a big bulky suitcase in your arms or breaking your back with an old Jansport? Roll in cases, whether you're flying to Fiji for the Peace Corps or taking the Greyhound right into the heart of the Sierra Nevadas. Roll in cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Roll in cases. And with that, ladies, gentlemen, listeners old and new, I bring you Miles Owings. Miles, welcome to Climate Change Therapy. It's a pleasure and honor to, to have you here this evening. Thank you for having me, uh, especially with your vaunted advertisers. Thank you very much. Oh, our advertisers are exact. They paid double for this episode. Um, as I alluded to a little bit uh, in the introduction, I, I, I don't know if you, you uh, were, were paying attention, but you are perhaps our most esteemed guest that we've had on this podcast here with work that is most directly related to, to climate change. So we're very particularly excited uh, uh, to have you here. Um, do you want to explain for our listeners in your own words, uh, perhaps uh, what, what you do, uh, why you think uh, I brought you on this program? Sure. I'd love to uh, just first off, uh, you know, hello everyone out there. Thank you again for having me on the show. I, I currently work as an environmental planner, for the regional planning organization. 
and uh, it's a pretty broad, you know, mandate in my office, but things that I get up to, uh, climate adaptation planning for the regional, uh, greater Philadelphia region climate adaptation plan, um, public access to green areas and just, just generally bringing the, the green stuff, the, the good, the trees, the farms, the, just the, the natural environment and bringing it more in alignment with our urban areas and kind of integrating those two in a regional perspective. That's, that's what my day to day basically entails. Mm-hmm. This is also uh, a place that I interned at uh, for a little while, uh, this regional planning commission. And I, I found it, I, I worked on a, a project uh, when I was there having to do with uh, with water and environment, with the environmental planning department. And what I thought was, was cool about it was that regional planning commissions historically are more about transportation. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that in more recent years, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's become it's become more geared towards environmental planning. Is that just the nature of our regional planning commission straddling the Delaware river? Um, mm. or is it kind of more of a, a larger trend you think that it's shifting from transportation to environmental planning? Yeah, those are, those are great, great observations. And, you know, just a bit of context, the interns at, at this organization are pretty much get 90% of the work done there. They're hard working bunch. Yeah. Um, shout out. Yeah. Yeah. They, they do a lot for relatively little money. Yeah. So the regional planning organization has like all regional planning organizations throughout the U S there's every city over 50,000 people is required to have one. And their federal mandate is to spend the transportation money, Mm. excuse me, spend the transportation money they get from the federal government and the local projects. So that's what they have to do. Uh, a few regional planning organizations, and DVRPC is one of these, get up to uh, a whole other, a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, DV, the, the one from Philadelphia isn't isn't alone in this. There are a few around the country that are even bigger and get into much more complicated projects. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, we're pretty much a full spectrum planning organization, and we provide. Uh, a whole range of economic development, um, yeah, population demographic analysis, uh, environmental planning, just you know, mm-hmm. a lot of areas that are kind of related to transportation planning, but also kind of independent as well. Mm-hmm. So, you, usually, the the first question I ask um, at all the guests is, "How often do you talk about climate change uh, at work or with your friends or?" Uh, you know, at at the the coffee uh, coffee machine at break time or whatnot. Um, you, I imagine, you talk about climate change quite a bit at work. So, what are some of the conversations that are going on there? Um, would you say that that people there believe in climate change? Let's start there. Yeah, people <laughs> who work at the office are are definitely on the. The believing in science, believing in, you know, what nature is trying to mm-hmm. tell us uh, camp. And you um, can you can use the term climate change in your reports? Um, yes. We okay. do get pushback when we... <laughs> no, seriously, we, we do get pushback when we have used climate change in invitations to events, uh, okay. uh, such as like a, a big um, forum where people could you know, come together and talk about climate change. We have had sent out like mass emails about that. And we've gotten pushback from 
different people throughout the the nine county region mm-hmm. of the greater Philadelphia area uh, having problems with our usage of the term. So okay. within our organization, I think we're, we're pretty comfortable outside of it. Uh, we, we do run into problems and this is especially true. Co a large part of our funding comes from the state governments. Mm-hmm. So state of Pennsylvania and state of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And if there's a state administration, which isn't on board with a lot of these things, then they can have a pretty good impact on, on what we do professionally. So we ran into that problem in uh, years past with, uh, with New Jersey state government. Mm-hmm. So what is the Philadelphia region playing for when it comes to climate change? Uh, you often think of um, cities on the coast will have to do sea level rise protection or, or uh, season in a more arid environments like LA would have to do more water planning, mm-hmm. for example, or you know, fighting forest fires um, up north. Uh, but what is Philadelphia? What are, what are some of the greatest threats to to this city uh, that we live in now, and that um, the planning commission is 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 looking to address? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually one that comes up fairly frequently. So Philadelphia does not have any of the big existential obvious threats that you know, say Miami or New Orleans or you know any any number of other coastal cities do. The the sea level rise. Um, will have an impact. We're estimated to get around two feet by 2050. Mm. So that will have an impact in certain neighborhoods um, uh, close to the Delaware River, close to the lower end of the, the Schuylkill River. Um, the The biggest impact I see and the biggest threat to Philadelphia is not so much sea level rise, but the, the heat increases. Mm. So Philadelphia already has a pretty significant urban heat island problem. Mm-hmm. There are some neighborhoods in North um, Philadelphia, which can be 20 degrees hotter than other neighborhoods in the city. And that's just on a normal summer day right now. Mm-hmm. So you compound that with, uh, you know, a, a, a summer where you're going to have almost doubled the amount of days over hundred degrees by 2050. And you're looking at significant um, heat problems in the, in the city, mm-hmm. the, the, the common story in the media. So the media likes to play up um, flooding. Mm-hmm. Flooding is the most disastrous uh, thing that can happen in the U.S. It causes the greatest number of dollars um, and disasters. Heat, though, causes the greatest number of deaths. Mm. So when you start looking at, you know, when you start just stop looking at the insurance results or the insurance premiums after disaster, but start looking at the human cost, heat is a, a much higher threat. And right. I think that Philadelphia is really going to have to be proactive in, in not just planting more trees, but also planting trees that can survive in a climate, which uh, is more going to be more like uh, Tennessee or Florida, because mm-hmm. we can't just plant the trees we've already existed with. They're adapted for a Northern climate and the, the heat is going to be rising too quickly for plants to adapt. So we're going to have to be planting trees for a Southern climate mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Right. And heat also, I guess it can affect when you speak of the Philadelphia region, the the agricultural land mm-hmm. and the outlying counties um, could be, be affected with their, their ro- crop rotations and all that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There isn't um, as much agricultural um, concerns mm-hmm. in the, uh, the, the Philadelphia region. I guess that's get, more Lancaster. You have to really start county. getting out to Lancaster where you get to where the agriculture is a central part of the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, within the, the suburb 
counties around Philadelphia, agriculture is important, but it's not a, an integral part of the economy. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, they are going to have significant problems. And I, I think it's, it's something that is going to affect every municipality, not just, you know, with sea level rise, it's only the ones in the coast. Okay. With heat will impact everybody. And I think that's right. something that we're just not really paying yeah. attention to yet. Yeah, you said we will have double the days over 100 degrees by 2050. So. Yeah, I'd have to look at the um, the graphs. Okay. But, but yeah, yeah, how, how many days do we have now that are over 100 degrees? A handful. Uh, half a dozen? Yeah, half a dozen. I'd, I'd have to look at the exact graphs. But um, yeah. days over 100 are important because... When you get to that heat during the day, it's less likely that you'll get to below 70 degrees at night. And that's a threshold. That's a critical threshold for people who are living in houses without uh, central air conditioning or can't mm -hmm. afford to pay their air conditioning bills. Right. If the outside temperature doesn't get below 70 degrees, then people don't have a chance to cool off at night as they sleep. And it just compounds the amount of uh, heat, heat related health issues. Mm -hmm. And just so we're clear, because I, I always people pin me as an optimist and yeah. they paint that negatively. Sometimes I'm always trying to find the blessing in disguise, mm -hmm. but heat and temperature has nothing to do with the efficiency of solar panels. Right. Like, like, yeah. So like this doesn't mean more solar energy at all. Yeah, he, he can actually... I just want to clarify he, that for yeah, our he, listeners. Yeah, he can actually decrease the efficiency of solar panels. Right. That's right. why... The um, sun is out for the same amount of time. Just because it's hotter, it doesn't yeah. mean we're getting more energy. Yeah, he, he can actually melt solar panels. Uh, that's why you can't really have um, the PV, photo, photovoltaic cells in desert climates. That's why they use mirrors to heat steam, because mm. the extreme heat in desert climates can uh, harm the photovoltaic cells. Uh, mm -hmm. And they have to use other ways to do sun and heat. Okay. Yeah. All right. So definitely heat. Uh, I want to just go back quickly to sea level rise because um, you mentioned, you said you, you get two to three feet. Yeah. So by, we're, we're pretty, by when? So most of the climate models are uh, a very high degree of certainty. So, you know, with climate models, and this is something that. Uncertainty. You, yeah. Yes. Sorry, uncertainty. uncertainty. This is something. No, certainty. Certain, certain. No, I mean, are you yeah. certain for 2050? It's a high degree of certainty. Okay. Yes. I see. I see. Yeah. So, and this is something with climate models that people like to, you know, poke holes in. We can never say for a hundred percent certainty what something is going to happen, but we can come pretty close mm -hmm. and the impacts to 2050, we are pretty certain because the impacts of carbon in the atmosphere are on a, a delay. So we're now getting the impacts of carbon released in the nineties. Hmm. And we know how much carbon we're releasing today. So we can say fairly certainly with a fairly high degree of certain what will happen in 2050 because we know exactly how much carbon we're releasing today. Hmm. So 2050 is pretty much locked in. And the Philadelphia region um, and most of the eastern seaboard is looking at about two feet of sea level rise. With that, there are three factors that go into sea level rise. And, and that's just by 2050. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, you have to look at the other factors that go into sea level rise and Philadelphia isn't doing as bad as other areas. We're not subsiding as much. And mm -hmm. so that, that has a, a helpful, you know, some other, like the lower part of the Atlantic seaboard is subsiding a little bit faster than mm -hmm. Philadelphia. So, so yeah. my question is being on the Delaware river, which flows into the Atlantic, does the sea level rise 
come from does it come upstream from the mm-hmm. delaware mm-hmm. as a okay so as a, as opposed to i got you okay yeah and that that causes its own problems yeah that's that's very so so the tricky. delaware river is um Oh, I'm I'm blanking on the word. Where freshwater and brackish. Delaware River is brackish. It's a combination of saltwater and freshwater. Uh-huh. But there is a line in the river called the salt line. I think it might be called something else, but it's the salt line. It's where the water is uh, essentially saltwater, and usually that's down in Wilmington, Delaware area. Uh, occasionally during times of drought, when the flow of the river was really low, Delaware River, it has gone as far north as the Ben Franklin Bridge. Mm. that's usually not a huge problem except for the fact that the water intakes for the Philadelphia water department are in North Philadelphia. And if the salt line and the sea level ever rose to a certain point, our water plants are not designed to handle salt water. They would have to construct an entirely new intake valve farther mm. North to get to fresh water. So sea level rise has a kind of like a, we hold on. Sorry. The Philadelphia Water Department gets their water. I know that I knew that we got our drinking water from the Delaware River, mm-hmm. but I was thinking that we were getting it from the Water Gap, where the, the water is pristine. We're getting yep. it from North Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yep. Yeah. The Baxter Water Plant is our biggest water intake, so we get, I think, three fourths from the Delaware River and about one fourth from the Schuylkill. Yeah. So PWD is looking at how the salt line, if it ever got <laughs> the Schuylkill. Yeah, yeah, Upper Schuylkill. We have an intake on this Upper Schuylkill. Yeah. I did not realize that. Yeah. I just figured we got the water from the point on the river where it was the cleanest, and then we sort of, like, transported it in well, pipes. Well, you'd have to look at... That'd be a pipe several hundred miles or a hundred miles I long. I guess that's just yeah. what I thought we did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's this is a, this yeah, is a solvable sense. problem, but it's just, you know, sea level rise isn't just the water rising. It also creates a lot of other problems in a, in a saltwater brackish environment, basically. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So how how about in uh in your social life? Yeah. Among friends. Uh do you ever <laughs> you ever take uh take your work home with you? No. No. <laughs> uh if people have like questions about it then I mean I'll I'll talk about it, but mm-hmm. I mean at the end of the day it's just it's just not 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 a something that people want to talk about when they're trying to relax. Mhm. Um, my, my parents like to talk about it a lot. Um, yeah, just cause they're, they're curious and, you know, trying to, trying to figure things out. But, you know, unless someone asks me a specific question, I, I try to avoid bringing it up. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Or do you fo- avoid bringing it up to, to spare them kind of that topic? Or is it that you yourself are tired of thinking about it? Both. Both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and at, at the office, so yeah, at, at the regional planning organization, there's my office, which is environmental planning, but there's also an office of climate change and energy policy. And those people deal with this on a much more, uh, central level. You know, I, I work on projects that deal with this, but this is the, their daily work in that office deals with climate change. Mm. And, uh, and we sit next to them and we, you know, share articles and share books and, Mm-hmm. We we try and talk about it, uh, you know, as much as we can. So, how exactly do the the projects that the Office of Climate Change and Energy work on differ from what the Office of Environmental Planning works on? So they're um, a, a smaller office, and they are heavily focused on the energy audit for the region. So 
figuring out where most of our energy is coming from and going and figuring out the greenhouse gas uh, emissions that are tied to that. So they, they do a lot of work just collecting and analyzing and disseminating that data to, Mm -hmm. to the region. Um, They also do a lot of coordinating work with um, different groups and uh, you know, different groups in the region and different groups at the national and international level about Mm -hmm. uh, energy policy and climate change. So they're, they're more in the energy and, um, I guess mitigation realm, mm-hmm. whereas the projects and environmental planning, the one I've been on has been more of an adaptation type project. Mm-hmm. Almost like your, your study is more natural systems as opposed to the other, the office of climate change and energy. They're studying kind of these man-made constructs, like the electrical grid. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of overlap and we work together on a lot of projects, but yeah. that's a, that's a, yeah, a fairly good high-level summary, yeah. So can I ask uh, just one question? Sure. So there's an article on Black Radius uh, about uh, a few months ago about windmills. Um, and in the Philadelphia region, take a guess at how many windmills there are. 50. Zero. Zero. Oh, even the ones on top of the Eagles Stadium? That's not... I guess it has to be a windmill, it has, sort of. Oh, okay. Yeah, it gotcha. has to be used for... Yeah, that, uh, I don't think that counts. That's more of a, just a, a pinwheel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's no no windmills. And even in, in New York, the New York region, there's like three or four. Yeah. Off, offshore wind potential is is something that is uh, very promising. It's In the Delaware? I'm not sure. There's been a lot of... Why not? Uh, I, I, I don't keep up with the policies and politics of New Jersey and New York offshore yeah. uh, licensing. The, the big, the big thing with with offshore is that people in, in the t- coastal towns they don't they don't like the view. They think yeah. it, it'll hurt their property taxes or just their spirit, whatnot. But I mean, in Philadelphia, where you have there's buildings everywhere, you're looking mm-hmm. across at at Camden, and it's a fine skyline. But I don't think windmills would hurt that skyline. No, yeah, I, I can't imagine it would. Um, oh, putting a, you know, the the thing with windmills is, the the bigger they are, the more efficient they are. So small scale um, windmills, which we're kind of used to seeing alongside, especially if you take like a road trip out west and you see hundreds of road, uh, windmills, those are those are fairly small scale. The ones that they put offshore are three to four times bigger. Right. And the economies of scale with those, they're just much more efficient. Yeah. So they can actually, um, for their uh, total size, they're they're getting much more than like three or four times, you know, the size difference is what they are. So that's why offshore wind is so, so interesting because mm-hmm. you can put these absolutely massive windmills out there and you have the the room for it yeah it's kind of ironic in a way because the offshore wind can supply all the it, could, it supplies the power first and foremost to the coastal cities that are mm-hmm. most directly threatened by climate change so if you're going to build a, a plant and all this infrastructure to support the offshore wind but there's at the same time there's so much long-term uncertainty um yeah, well, that I mean, that's the same thing with nuclear. With nuclear power, you need to have a, a huge amount of water supply. So that's mm-hmm. why all our nuclear plants are on the coast. 
It'd be great mm-hmm. if we could build a nuclear plant in the middle of a desert and not worry about it, but you have to put them where they have a, a tremendous supply of, of water that they can readily use, reliably use. Um, or, or rivers, right? Or, or rivers, yeah. And I, I know this isn't the best example of, uh, of a, you know, a case study in nuclear power plant best practices, but uh, I don't think Chernobyl was on the coast. Uh, no, <laughs> Chernobyl is uh, a couple hundred miles, or so. It's it's north of Kiev in Ukraine. Okay. Um, yeah. So but no, it was on. It was on a river, though. Yeah. The, the per- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So with a nuclear plant, you either have okay. to have a river, you have to build a lake, you have to have yeah. it on the ocean. Okay. Um, and Chernobyl, it was between like this by this huge lake. So I see yeah, that. yeah. The water requirements, which is also you know you brought up Camden, but it's really exciting. The um, Holtec International, the company in Camden is working on air-cooled nuclear power plants right now. That is very yeah. cool. Krishna Singh, the guy who just donated the whole nanotechnology building to the University of Pennsylvania, yeah. his company is working on um, air-cooled uh, nuclear power plants. How do you generate the air? Well, it'd just be like you could put it anywhere. Oh, oh it, just, would, it would suck in air from the outside. Just static air. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like very interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know what the sad as that is but you know with with the mm-hmm. there's a huge desire and the markets are really starting to respond to this of you know having carbon free power because it just right. is, is something that um you know i think there's a there's a general idea that at some point carbon is going to be priced in mm-hmm. some some factor oh yeah so a lot of companies are trying to like figure out okay so how do we you know have a product that can be used when that if that happens mm-hmm and there's there's a lot of really cool research going on. I don't know if it's ever going to be at the level, the scale we need, but there are cool stuff going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I've been watching some of the Democratic debates, right. and it seems like on climate, they're all pretty strong. They're pretty strongly aligned. But the one issue that there seems to be some differences on is nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth Warren, for example, is is against nuclear, um, but a, a lot of the other remaining candidates are. I, for, I forget whether. Bernie Sanders is. He's not against nuclear? I, I don't think he is. Okay. I could be mistaken on that, but I don't think he is. Okay. I'm, I, 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 yeah. We'll have to check that. Um, but, I mean, where, where do you stand on, on nuclear? I, I support it. Yeah. I, I don't see a pathway to a carbon-neutral energy environment without nuclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the past 20 or 30 years, the strides that solar and wind and other renewable energies have, it's, it's tremendous. It's, it's been one of the greatest engineering stories of our time. Unfortunately, all that extra capacity has just been going to feed our growing desire for more electricity. So we haven't reduced the amount of carbon being released because even though our energy system is becoming much more efficient, we're just desiring so much more energy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I think at a, at some point we're going to have to have a conversation about, mm-hmm. you know, reducing consumption potentially. I don't know, but if we continue to increase our desire for electricity at the rate we are, there is just no physical way that renewable sources can supply our energy demands and nuclear will have to be a part of the equation. 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that, at least as a kind of short-term Band-Aid, because we're, we're desperate and we can't mm-hmm. go from where we are now to, to solar and wind. Um, and there's talk that you know, a lot of the advances that we have made, if you look at the charts and how we our air quality is, is improving since the days of um, coal plants in Pittsburgh and, and whatnot, is, is natural gas. But natural gas has been ex- expanding the point. That's still a... It still puts carbon in the atmosphere, and it's mm-hmm. not a long-term solution. That was kind of a, the Band-Aid. Yeah. So I think you know, it's, it's CO2 is, is what is the problem right now, yeah. and we need nuclear uh, plants. Those aren't, they're not forever. They can get decommissioned. The one, uh, one New York is, has been, got decommissioned Three, recently. Three Mile Island is currently going through that process. Um, yeah. the, with, with nuclear, there's, there's a couple issues, and I'm not in any means an expert in this but the regulatory environment for nuclear is tough because there's uh this this tremendous public fear of them in opposition mm-hmm. to them and this pushes the regulations um the this pushes politicians to continuously update and improve regulations and it it creates a a, a very hard uh environment for nuclear companies to to know you know what exactly what specs they should be going for um so so there are there are bigger issues with nuclear but i i think that it has to be a part of the equation and mm-hmm. the with coal um I, I i think it's phenomenal that the united states has managed to reduce its use of coal yeah but the worldwide usage of coal hasn't gone down we've yes. just moved the focus from the united states to india and china mm-hmm. right so all of those uh, it infrastructure systems you know back office support firms and factories and all of these companies that we rely on in the u.s now based in india and china they have energy demands as well and they're being supplied with coal so mm-hmm. um you know, fi- finding a way for those those two countries to continue to grow and evolve economically mm-hmm. um, without consuming the rate of coal that they've been going for, as I think is is a major international um, mm-hmm. challenge. So that there that kind of begs the question because so r- right now there's it says there's sixty nuclear power plants in the United States. Okay, um, just just to bring oh, wow. bring that back and that to. To power the world, it would take fourteen thousand five hundred. Yeah, does that, does that make sense? Does that sound like a realistic fact? Yeah, I mean, nuclear is such a small part of our energy portfolio now that uh, any increase, like, yeah, I mean, I think the the scale mm-hmm. of those um, plants would have to be huge. France, I think, has a lot of nuclear. They, yeah, I think they're mostly nuclear. Yeah, seventy one percent of France's total electricity production wow. is nuclear. Yeah, that's and awesome. It, but in the U.S., it's what, like 5%, 1%? I, yeah, I can't. I don't know the exact percentage. Minuscule. Between 1% to 5 <laughs> uh, I want to get back to what you were saying sure. about India and, and coal. Because yeah. coal is cheap. You can, you can anyone can kind of mine. I don't want to say anyone, but you can you go down the mines, you, mm-hmm. get, you get coal. Um, uh, the, the question, though, is with nuclear, you have to be very careful. And you have to be very technologically advanced. And it has, everything has to be safe. So in a country like India, where they have such electricity demands with such a high population, 
um, and they're going to need have such a need for air conditioning and things like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, how, do, how are they going to, they're going to, you, you know, you bet your ass they're going to make every effort to save Mumbai from going underwater. So right. there's, a, there's a lot of things that are going to be happening in India. But would you, do you think it would be best for a country like India to invest in nuclear where they might not have the capacity to really put the money and time and 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 regulations in place that would that would that it with the that would um give it this the level of safety that is that is necessary because i I think we're in agreement that nuclear is best in in america where we have these kind of regulations but in india i and this is nothing against india you know what i'm saying it's just like the reality i'm 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 just trying to, you know, because we we saw with, um, I, I watched the series Chernobyl, and there there were a lot of they took shortcuts for economic reasons, and that's mm-hmm. that was a large uh, part of why their reactor, you know, wasn't um, wasn't working it properly. So, if if we proliferate nuclear power plants, we also proliferate the chances of catastrophe. It yeah, just takes so I guess one catastrophe. I, I guess I have a couple, a couple of different ways of answering this question. Um, first off, I I think the the Indian government and the companies and the people have they they can figure out the technological questions. I mean, they have a space program that's one of the most advanced in the world. Mm-hmm. They're they they that that I'm not, I'm not worried about at all. Um, I I think nuclear would have to be the part of the portfolio for any any developing country, any developed country in the world, just because the renewables that we have right now are great, but they're not hundred percent reliable. If the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow, then we run into problems and nuclear supplies those, uh, it fills in those valleys mm-hmm. where the, the supply goes down. So we, we need some form of constant, uh, reliable energy in order to power, power the modern society. Mm-hmm. Um, and nuclear, I think is, is one of the strongest, um, yeah. contenders for that. And, but then when you're talking about a nuclear catastrophe, um, yes, nuclear plants, um, are, are dangerous and the radiation, right. if there's a, an accident, I know Chernobyl was terrible, but it was very, very close to being much, much worse. Yes. Yes. Uh, potentially contaminating, uh, half of Europe. Yeah. And you know, so there are catastrophes and there are terrible things that can happen. But when you look at the catastrophe of coal, the air environment in New Delhi um, is killing thousands of people a year, potentially mm-hmm. more. The uh, children who are raised in that environment have developmental difficulties throughout their entire life. So the the scale of a potential nuclear catastrophe is high the scale of the ongoing catastrophe due to air pollution is is much higher in my opinion so um yeah there there isn't an easy answer for this but mm-hmm. I, I think it's important um coal might be uh on its face uh, a simple and easy solution but it has so many more destructive uh impacts down the line that uh, comparing the two would it, it's it's challenging yeah 
It's a, it definitely begs some some tough questions. Yeah, you know, because yeah. it's e- it's easier for us. And I'm I agree with you on nuclear. Uh, it, and it's easy to say like you know nuclear is a necessary short term reaction, but when you start thinking about fourteen thousand like nuclear power plants and it, it you know around the world and mm-hmm. um, you know in in the hands of you know countries I'm, I'm not talking about India now but like there's a lot of uh, countries that can become corrupt on the on the switch of a dime and and you put nuclear power plants into the hands of the private sector where people are shortchanging. Um, you know, certain uh, mm-hmm. taking shortcuts just uh, for this for the sake of uh, profit, like you know, accidents can happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm never, you know, I'm definitely gonna agree with you on that. I I just think the 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 regulatory environment and the political environment, uh, you know, that's that is something that can be. Mm-hmm. The that that the the energy companies and the people can work with. I, I, I have, I have confidence. Um, and no, I mean, our, our, what our modern system requires, uh, uh, an extremely high level of reliable energy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if a country is going to, to take that development route, I mean, we can talk about whether or not countries should be focused more on, uh, you know, agrarian systems and uh, communities and feeding their people and, and not, you know, embracing such a high level of developmental demands like that. That's a valid conversation. But, um, you know, on the scale of the issue, India and China have both made the decision to become as developmentally advanced as they, they can. And that's that's the right as countries to make. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, figuring out the energy supply and and, you know, in. And this gets to the whole question that the United States is the highest historical emitter of carbon, you know, in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we fed our industrial revolution off of these very same systems, even to the point like and still into right. modern days when we knew they were bad. Um, mm-hmm. we, we didn't stop when we realized that all this carbon we were pumping into the atmosphere was bad. We just kept going. And, you know, so working with other countries on, on how to, to realize their economic goals in a, in a safe manner mm-hmm. and an environmentally manner, environmentally friendly manner, I think is, is one of the biggest international right. policy challenges of our time. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, something like, you know, 50% of all of carbon that we put in the atmosphere we've put in since the first episode of Seinfeld aired, like in, that's yeah. in our lifetime. Miles. Yeah. Yeah. Like in our, like this isn't, yeah. This isn't like the, really even the mistake of the you know, generation before. It's like like this has all happened. This mm-hmm. be like in our uh, lifetime. Uh, one more just follow up question on nuclear. Um, so the amount of countries that have nuclear weapons uh, is is not many. It's like it's like a dozen or something, roughly. I don't the know. ones that publicly admit it, sure. So if you basically. If you're a country, can you have a nuclear power plant and not have nuclear weapons? Yeah. You can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah the the refined the level of refined uranium needed for a nuclear bomb is much higher and requires significantly different um, factories to make, okay. and so that's that's what the whole thing with the Iranian. Uh, that's where I had to question them because they were building refineries which 
could be used for private purposes, but also had the capability to refine uranium to a, a bomb level. So that, that was like the big thing with Iran. Okay. If they were just building plants that could refine only refine uranium to a certain level, then I think it would have been as much a, a big of a deal. But they were building plants that had dual purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. so that was like the... But yeah, no, if you're just going for sheer straight nuclear power, it's a very different um, ref- refining refining process yeah that's good a little bit of good news on yeah and once again therapy. i am not a nuclear physicist <laughs> this is just something i read on new york times <laughs> um let's uh let's uh start this segment right now i want to just take a quick uh quick turn here we're gonna okay. do a little climate change fact and react got it um, so do you want hmm do you want a, a a fact that is is more uh people based is or more person based more habit driven more or more uh, animal based let's do people based people based person yeah. based okay so so aristotle right you yeah. know he, he's the guy with the geocentrist model of the universe yeah. you know the earth is at the center of the universe and then you know in your 1500 he's the ancient greek and then 1500 copernicus says copernicus comes along and he says Hey, actually, the sun is at the center of the universe, and Aristotle was was proven wrong after fifteen hundred years. So there's another uh, another uh, concept, another idea that Arist- Aristotle had that was very wrong. He wrote a ten book, ten volumes, ten volume book series called the History of Animals. Aristotle did, uh, without ever considering the concept of extinction. So he wrote. He basically wrote the entire like world's idea of the whole history of of, of animals, and okay. extinction was not part of that history at all. Interesting. So people actually did not believe in extinction until after the Copernican Revolution. In fact, extinction as a phenomenon in the in the animal world was not discovered until 1796. Wow. After the founding of the United States of America, uh, it was not discovered until 1796 by Georges Cuvier, a French a Frenchman. Um, so he discovered extinction by studying the differences between uh, African Indian elephants, determining you know these are clearly two different species of elephants. Mm-hmm. One has huge ears, one does not. Um, and then he was uh, he uh, compared them to fossils that they had found of mammoths that previously they just thought the mammoth fossils must be some kind of African elephant or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he compared them to fossils of the the mastodon, the North American mastodon, and he he just determined, um, no, you know what, extinction is the thing that happens. But something another interesting thing about George Cuvier, and forgive me, this is a, a long fact I understand, was. Although he believed in extinction, and he, in fact, discovered extinction, he f- also fervently opposed evolution. <laughs> so he, his idea wa- about extinction was that it didn't happen gradually, but rather it happened with c- catastrophic events, mm. um, you know, such as the, the flood in Genesis. Um, and which, so he was a Christian, and he believed in, he discovered extinction as a scientist. Uh, but he was against um, evolution. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and it just speaks to the, I guess the the, you know the the story of how science evolves and right. how concepts that we take for for granted for obvious you know <laughs> fact right. were at one time the the craziest things in the world. Like the whole theory of plate tectonics is only a few decades old. It wasn't really published until the fifties or sixties. People thought right. it was wild that you know, North America used to be in Africa. It just, it just never crossed anybody's mind, but now it's just a fact of life. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, if I was just an old person walking on the street, I wouldn't have thought of extinction. Like, right. you know, you don't have the historical record to know like, Oh, well those small little birds, they're not around anymore. Well, maybe they just moved to a different part of the world. Like it wasn't really until I guess the modern age where we could, you know, coordinate, messages and be like oh wait you guys lost those birds too oh we all oh we all lost the birds mm-hmm. and you could really like get a idea of extinction so yeah that makes that yeah. makes sense to me although it is really fascinating yeah and it, it, it's what i just kind of read this today uh-huh. and it kind of speaks to with the whole you know why we don't talk about climate change why we don't want to mm-hmm. talk about climate change is that we we can't fathom the possibility of our own extinction you know it's it's a child's mm-hmm. tale it's noah's ark um, or, you know, a religious fable of why we should be good to each other and not, you know, not sin in excess so that God doesn't, you know, wipe us out yeah. with, a, with a flood. Um, so intuitively, we cannot fathom our own extinction. We could not even fathom the extinction of other species mm-hmm. for, you know, mm-hmm. forever. Like mm-hmm. this is just, we just, we just assumed that these species were, were always there and, um, so the fact that extinction was discovered at all, and that it took 200 years after the scientific revolution, the Copernican revolution, <laughs> that it yeah. took that long to discover extinction is pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of reference the psychology of, of climate change and that is, that is something that I, I don't know has been, it's just starting to get researched, but it is, it is fascinating really. I mean, humanity as a species is really bad at future planning. Mm-hmm. And and we're both professional planners. Like, this is what we do on a daily basis. But being able to look 20, 30 years in the future is is very difficult for humanity as a species. And Because we used to only live to age 30. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, just... Just the idea of being mm-hmm. able to plan for old age is kind of a kind mm-hmm. of a new thing. Yeah, um, you know, it used to be you would have kids by the time you're 20, yeah. and you'd be a 10 year war veteran by the time you're 30, and you have nothing to do but go die an honorable death. And and now we're, you know, I I started a 401k this year. Oh, Can't take that out until I'm 63 yeah. or not. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a, that, that's a life step. But I mean, anybody who's ever procrastinated for a paper for school understands, like. That's right. Okay, uh, anybody who's ever procrastinated for a paper for school understands that, you know, as a, as a species, like everyone procrastinates and climate change and dealing with the hard facts of climate change. That is something I mean, even I have that difficulty, right. even though I don't personally believe that we're facing an extinction level um, event. I mean, I think that as always, there's the possibility mm-hmm. of self extinction. We can nuke ourselves to oblivion tomorrow. But if you're just looking at climate change in isolation with no other uh, impacts, then I, I don't think that in and of itself mm-hmm. would lead to a human extinction. Um, 
Yeah. But I mean, it, it would lead to a significant amount of suffering and death for a lot of people around the world. And even, even I, it's, it's hard to wrap my hand around those numbers. Yeah. Your point about procrastination is, is a fascinating one because I, I think, you know, importantly, the things we procrastinate, it's not, we don't procrastinate them because they're unimportant. In fact, sometimes what we procrastinate are the most important thing that we can only kind of begin until we feel totally ready. Like think about, you know, in a paper that you have to write your final term paper, like you're, you're going to keep researching, keep reading, um, keep thinking about it, keep outlining, keep plotting, keep procrastinating, writing the damn thing until you feel like you're absolutely ready. And I mean, in many cases you even like procrastinate the research part of it as well. Um, So we don't procrastinate because we think things are unimportant. We procrastinate almost precisely because they are important Mm -hmm. and we just don't, we just, we've, it makes us too nervous to deal with in some level. Like we want to get the small things out of the way first. We want to clear the decks so that we, we got a free weekend. I'm going to, I'm going to do all these little things I have to do so I can just concentrate this final weekend on, on this term paper. And that's kind of like with climate change, like, like, well, we're, you know, let's quibble the, and the details of healthcare or, um, you know, college tuition and all, all these problems that are problems. But they're not the most important problem, but they are problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But let's let's get all this kind of figured out first and then like yeah. address climate change. Um, yeah, I don't. I that's don't kind know. of that's kind of like the human psychology. Behind I, it, I don't perhaps. know the deep seated reasons for that. Uh, I don't. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people who, you know, are writing a lot about this. I just know for me personally, you know, that's that's the best connect. That's the best example I have. Yeah. Mm hmm. Wow. Which which doesn't which doesn't bode well for the the future of humanity if if the people who are professionally paid to work in this still even like have this idea of yeah you know have this this kind of feeling that we are procrastinating on some of these some of these <laughs> issues yeah <laughs> um but so on the one speaking of procrastination like do you get get some solace over the fact that you are are working on this issue every day like does it does it, or does it feel like you're still procrastinating in some way i know it feels like the whole the world is procrastinating but do you also feel like you personally are procrastinating in some way because so for I, me i yeah. th- this therapy like uh-huh. this is my way of like feeling that i'm not you know if i didn't do this mm-hmm. then i'd be doing really nothing and i'd feel like that was procrastinating but i feel like in the absence of any thing that I can do directly about climate change. I just, I just do this podcast while I wait. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, um, so professionally, um, you know, when you, when you sit in the room and you hear what people are doing and I'm on a very, very low level in the region and you know, I just get to sit in the room and listen to what other project managers are talking yeah, about. You're it. in the room. Yeah. And it, it is like, there is just amazing work being done by, a bunch of agencies in the, in the region. Um, I always try and tell people there's a lot more work being done than you probably realize, but there's a lot less than what needs to be done. And, and so, you know, I, I know I'm on a track to someday do more professionally. So I don't, worry too much about procrastinating in that regard even though you know i always wish i could do more but you know i'm yeah i'm I'm seeing what what's being done and i 
I, I know what I need to do to help that. Um, yeah. For me personally, and this this gets into the whole, I guess you know our our personal responsibility for climate change, mm-hmm. um, and the you know there's there's a couple couple caveats to this. So our personal decisions by ourselves mean almost nothing. Um, <laughs> and even if even if all of us around the world lived the most environmentally friendly lives, that would still only be 30 to 40% of the solution. Like yeah. us as people have a very minimal impact. Mm-hmm. Massive multinational corporations, the the militaries of the world, the US army emits more carbon than the vast majority of countries. Mm-hmm. It's um, not about eating less meat, it's about selling less meat. Yeah, yeah, just our our modern corporate global system is Mm -hmm. incredibly environmentally destructive so that being said it makes me feel a little better to do small things every day that are more environmentally friendly so i do that i -hmm. do that sort of stuff just it it's for me personally you know riding my bike to work making sure i use the same you know bag when i go shopping like you know it takes seven thousand uses of a canvas bag to make it environmentally neutral it's like voting yeah, and and voting for candidates who mm-hmm. who put this as a priority, yeah. which is it's it's hard to find at a national level, but at a state and local level, they they exist. They're mm-hmm. very they're very much there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you said you mentioned before the show that you recently wrote a paper uh, on climate adaptation for uh, municipalities, which in Pennsylvania parlance, it towns. Um, in the Philadelphia region, um, can you uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, the, I guess the idea behind this uh, this paper, the the cities, um, Philadelphia, really in this region, uh, they have professional staff who are devoted to climate change. So the water department and the office of sustainability and. Uh, all these, you know, different offices throughout various um, organizations, they have professional people who think about how climate change impacts their department every day. Once you get outside of Philadelphia, there's a pretty steep drop off and mm-hmm. who's doing work mm-hmm. there. There are occasionally people at the county level who do some sort of environmental work, but a lot of times they're they're tremendously under-resourced. Um, you know, they only have yeah. one or two personnel or they have no budget. Um, and then when you get to the, the township or borough level, um, then it's just, it's even worse. Like no one has the capacity to, to deal with this mm-hmm. at the scale that it needs to be done. Yeah. Cause um, it's, cause it's like what you said, like changing our behavior, even if we all did something, mm-hmm. it would only account for 30%. So for these small towns that, that don't have the ability to um, kind of create structural change, they are concerned about other issues. Yeah, yeah. And so when in those situations, we try and deal with things that are will help with climate change, but also will help lift them create a livable town to begin with, like having more open space, um, trying to, you know, get a more efficient transportation, trying to you know, increase just general sustainable development goals as well as which also happen to have Mm -hmm. um, related climate change impacts. But the paper I wrote 
was explicitly for these um, municipalities who were interested in climate change. So this is adaptation planning. Mm. In the climate world, you have mitigation, which is trying to reduce carbon and trying to reduce your impact and trying to mitigate the future problem. Mm -hmm. You have resiliency, which is how do you deal with the with the shocks when they come. So whether they're like abrupt mm. shocks like a storm or slightly longer term shocks like a heat wave or, you know, increased sea level. And then you have adaptation, which is how do you live with the new status quo of those changes? Oh. So it's kind of like three facets of climate change planning. Okay. And so this this paper was mostly focused on resiliency and adaptation. Mm. And how do you help municipalities who are interested but just don't have the the basic information, like how do you supply them the mm-hmm. tools and methodologies to um, to start writing their own adaptation plans? And there's a couple strategies municipalities mm-hmm. can use. And you know, without getting too technical, there are things that every municipality of, of any level of capacity can can do that would have significant improvements, mm-hmm. you know, in the future. And this gets to the whole. What are those? What are some examples of those things they can do? Um, just, just starting to communicate, really starting Mm -hmm. to communicate to their people. Um, Let me rephrase the question. Okay. So typical kind of small town in Pennsylvania, maybe it's, maybe it's on the Delaware Mm -hmm. or the, the, um, the Susquehanna, um, or, or not. What would be an example of a climate mitigation strategy? a climate resilience strategy and a climate adaptation strategy, just so we're clear on those, those distinctions and how they're being defined by the quasi judicial sector. <laughs> sure. Um, so for any, any small town, uh, a mitigation strategy, it could be anywhere from like solar panels. Yeah. So, uh, signing a right. purchase. Maybe let's do that. Let, let me guess. And you can correct me wrong. So okay, yeah. Okay. So, so climate mitigation would be like solar panels or yeah. wind farms, things that have to do with emitting CO two. Yeah. Um, also, like, what about like putting in a hip city veg? Uh, maybe veggie burgers. Uh, Beyond Burgers are not really any better for the environment than regular burgers. Okay. <laughs> so solar panels, wind farms—is that pretty much? Well, those those are two examples. Okay. So maybe like uh, more public transportation. Yeah. I, I got you. So yeah. things that admit less CO2. Yeah. Those are Bike examples. lanes, public transportation, um, okay. allowing for denser zoning so you could build things closer together, gotcha. uh, creating more, um, you know, and then this, a, a lot of these strategies also overlap. You yeah. know, it's not just clean breaks between a mitigation, adaptation, and resiliency strategy. There is a lot of overlap. But yeah, those would all be mitigation. And so resilience would be like, would that be like wetland restoration? Yeah, yeah, especially okay. if they're flood-prone, um, wetland restoration, planting a lot of trees. Trees are the most impactful thing you can do to really for climate change. They provide um, cover from the sun. They cool down the environment. They suck up carbon. They emit. Um, they they clean the air. Uh, trees and they're they're dirt cheap. Yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Like trees, trees are the biggest bang for your buck that you can pretty much, if you want to volunteer your time to stop climate change, go and find a place that lets you plant a lot of trees. You know, there's, there's actually, and this, this let's not count this as part of the segment climate change factory act, 
But apparently, and I don't have the exact numbers here. I'm going to look up, look them up while you react to them. But apparently there's more trees in the Northeast now than there were before industrialization. I've heard that. I don't, uh, yeah, I, I don't know enough. Um, I guess like the, yeah. the, the explanation would be maybe they're smaller scale cause they're used for, for like, you know, they're specially crafted for, for timber or I don't know, Christmas, who knows? Yeah. Well, when, when colonists arrived on the shores of North America, they pretty much immediately set out to do the most environmentally destructive things they could do. Mm-hmm. They cut down every tree they could find. They overfished everything. So the colonists, you know, looking at the environmental impacts of just industrialization leaves out the fact that the colonists themselves were incredibly destructive. Um, I, I was reading a book about the economic impacts of slavery mm-hmm. and they would just strip cut hundreds of thousands of acres throughout the South for the cotton plantations. And this was in the early 1800s. Yeah. Um, and they never like, there's, there's not a, a long-term viability for those fields. So they would farm them for a few decades, then move on. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just an incredibly destructive process. So I, I think, you know, to really get a, a good look at it, we'd have to go back to before the colonists and whether or not we were at that level of trees. And I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. That'd be great. Great. I'm sure someone's done some research on that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think you're right. So I'm looking at the article now and it's saying that there are more trees now in the United States um, than there were a hundred years ago. So I, I think yeah. part of that was with a lot of the, the conservation and preservation mm-hmm. movements that kind of began with Teddy Roosevelt. So after the mass clearings from plantations, I guess there was heavy deforestation. That's when they probably, um, you know, they, they, they slaughtered the redwood forest, those 3000 yeah. year old trees. That was a yeah. The gold, the gold rushes. Genocide. I mean, they just, they cut down every tree they could find to clear out land for mining for gold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it's like amazing that we, you know, yeah. talk about procrastinating. Like we save the redwoods just in time. If we had mm-hmm. waited another 25 years, could be, could be gone. Have you, have you seen yeah. the redwoods? Yeah. As a, as a wildland firefighter out West, I worked in, uh, I worked in those groves. Yeah. They're amazing. Jesus. Yeah, I uh, that's probably the number one place that I want to yep. go in the world right now. So you fought uh, fires um, where exactly? So I was based in California, but uh, I you travel all around the where you travel to wherever the fire is. You're with the the forest, forest service. service yeah. Forest service. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So so what were the fire? What 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 years were you were you there? Two thousand six to two thousand nine. Were the fire? I mean, the fires now that we read about were crazy. Were those happening? Like, what, were they wildfires back back then? Like what we see now? And I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I I generally don't trust the media's description of fires. Okay. Um. When when you're on the when you're on the fire when you're on the fire line, you don't really have a wider perspective of the rest of the West and how it's burning. You know how your particular fire is burning. I mean, you're, you're cut off and this is 06 to 09. There wasn't wide cell phone coverage. Right. You would spend two weeks essentially 
backpacking, camping in the middle of the wilderness, fighting this fire. So you're very well aware of what's going on in your particular so the, area. So the fire's raging for two weeks. Some some fires go for months. Yeah, but you have your particular area. <laughs> it's really like a battle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, the fire fire service you do uh during the season, you do 2 weeks on, 2 days off, 2 weeks on, 2 days off. And in those 2 weeks, you're you're in your fire, so you don't you don't really know what's going on in the bigger picture. So So you would be you'd be you wake up, you know, 9 9 to you eat breakfast, you go fight the fire 9 to 5, then you go back, eat dinner, go go back to sleep and then wake up and go fight the same fire. Uh, you it's sixteen hour days, so okay. you'd wake up at six. You'd be on the fire line at eight. You'd wow. get off uh, seven to eight. You'd go back to a camp. You you camp. I mean, you if you were on the fire, you didn't. You're in the middle of nowhere, so there's nothing else to do. So you did this for three years. Yeah, four and a half. So how, on like like what kind of percentage on average? Like how many days a week would you actually be fighting a fire? During the the height of the season, I would spend two weeks on a fire, two days basically sleeping because you get two days off, two weeks on fire, two days off. So there would always, if you didn't take those days off, there would always be a fire to fight. No, we're we're required to take the two days off because you're doing. Yeah, okay, but but yeah. I'm just saying like yeah. there's always a fire to fight. There's a there's a fire every day. Yeah. So during the the height of the season, there's <laughs> there is, uh, yeah. Um, and if you ever want to get like a, an idea of the scope, um, so we, we would check out something called the sit report. It's the, this, the, the bare bones listing of every fire in the United States at any one time. This, the, the what report? The sit report, the SIT report. Okay. Um, and it's printed every day and it lists every fire and, um, you can look at the national prep level. And it's one through five. One is there are no fires. There is nobody dispatched. Five, there are hundreds of fires. Every unit is dispatched. So if it was at a sit level of five, basically, that means that you, there are active mm-hmm. requests out. This is Northern California mostly. No. All over the all state. Over. And how large is the your squadron? So I worked on a, a hand crew, so 22 people. 22 people. And how about yeah. the whole service that's fighting these fires? Like uh, tens summer. of thousands. Tens of thousands of people. Yeah. And you, you are sleeping where? On the ground next to the fire line. Like in tents or? No. No, just on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we had tents every now and what then. What do you eat? MREs. What? MREs. What's M- MREs? It's military rations, meals ready to eat. Wow. Yeah. Jesus. Our, I mean, so you did this for three years. Yeah. Where do you go on your off days? What, you mean the two days you get off? <laughs> yeah. You take three showers. It takes three showers to get all the smoke off you because you don't take a shower in all those two weeks. Okay. What, but um, the showers aren't burnt down? Well, no. They're they're back at the base. Okay. So you drive to like the line of the fire. If we're lucky. There's. I mean, obviously, I know so little about... Yeah. This, so that's why I'm asking yeah. these questions. There's there's a huge range of fires. So there's like the big Southern California fires, which are like massive events. Well, let's start here. What's yeah. what's causing these fires? Uh, lightning strikes mostly. Lightning strikes. Yeah, and then I mean, there's there's human caused fires, um, but generally speaking, lightning strikes is the highest cause. Does CO two have any effect on the probability of lightning? Or the intensity? 
I have, I have no idea. It's something you should be looking into, man. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, a, need, it's a world. Lightning it's, rods. it's a world I don't I don't go okay, into so, much. So lightning strikes are yeah. causing these. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, there's been a lot of talk of with PG and E about yeah. you know their their power lines and the winds are so strong that it's pushing the power lines over and causing sparks and that's causing fires. I mean, that's that's a huge thing as well. Yeah, and and these are in areas you said all over the state, so people are living in these areas as well. Yeah. Have you, did you have to like, I mean, did you recover any like bodies? I've, I've never recovered body in a fire. No. Okay. Yeah. Have you seen anything? Well, I used to be a paramedic. So yeah. Used to be a par- paramedic. Yeah. A different yeah. job. Yeah. Yeah. I used to be a paramedic. Where so. were you, where were you a paramedic? In the Kentucky. In Kentucky. That mm-hmm. was before? No, it was after. <laughs> after the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Um, crazy so, life. So yeah. So I mean, you see, you see dead stuff, and it's like a you know, yeah, EMT and stuff. But um, but no, I I never worked uh, body recovery as a a wildland firefighter. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we, there's tons that I can ask you about <laughs> this. I I don't want to bore our listeners. I'm particularly interested in you know the the redwood forest and the forest mm-hmm. fires and all this. But but it reminded me something. I know f- from 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 knowing you uh, that you also worked in the Peace Corps in Fiji yeah. for a while, yeah. um, two years, right? Two years, two, two and a quarter, two, yeah. and, two and a quarter. Um, so Fiji is one of those countries that is as you know threatened by climate change as, yes. as any. Yeah. So what are how have you kind of thought about that? Do you, do you have people in Fiji that you kept in touch with at all, or how do you? think the that country is is preparing for for climate change are they able to um emigrate will they have to just what's going on in fiji right now yes yeah, so so fiji is where i i connected all the dots so before peace corps i was uh you know emergency responder firefighter paramedic i was doing all this stuff my undergraduate degree is in emergency medicine um and the, i just started to get unhappy with the emergency response and feeling a little burnt out. So I joined the Peace Corps and in Fiji, the town I was living in was built in the middle of a, a pretty egregious floodplain and it flooded like clockwork every like two or three months. And just this constant, uh, being constantly surrounded by a town, which was so obviously built in the wrong place. It kind of like connected the dots like, wait, there really is no such thing as a natural disaster. We have disasters because we built cities in the way of nature's processes. Mm. Um, and so that like connection to me right. was like, oh, I was getting burnt out because I was responding to all these emergencies. And like, there's no, we could be doing a lot more to, to stop this. And but so even, even the, the forest fires, if there weren't towns there, you wouldn't be fighting them. We'd still fight them for resource and economic reasons, like protecting valuable timber strands, stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But yeah, I mean, we expend a lot of resources to protect buildings, which people knew were in a dangerous area to build. No one's building a a house in an area that's going to burn. You can predict that just as much as building a house in a floodplain. There's no surprise there. Hmm. We know those houses are going to burn, and we tell people when they buy yeah. them that those houses are going to burn. But even what what about? Sorry, I want to get back to to yes, Fiji. Yeah, but no. What about California? Makes it more vulnerable to lightning strikes than any other. Place? It's not more vulnerable. the The brush in California burns 
mm. hotter. Okay. So brush because there's the, drought, right? There's less water. Not, not necessarily. The the chaparral, the brush chaparral of California is just it's it's a tinderbox, and mm-hmm. um, mm. you can you know people talk a lot about how we stopped fires from burning for decades, and so that's caused this heavy you know timber loading. It's caused these really extreme. That's not very accurate for Southern California because the brush chaparral grows back fully within about 20 years. So a lot of these areas burn fairly regularly. Just mm-hmm. this stuff is like tinderbox. It just it burns like crazy. It's not trees can take a lot to like get going. Once they get going, they really burn. But this brush chaparral mix, it just takes nothing to get going and it burns very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so back to Fiji. Um, so I was like constantly surrounded by this and that's where I got into city planning and like, you know, how do you adapt cities mm-hmm. and the built environment to, to what's happening naturally around us. And climate change is such a big part of that because it, it, um, increases the risks, but right. the, the country of Fiji, it's actually kind of interesting. So in the South Pacific, you have two types of islands and I guess they're essentially the same island, just, you know different geological timelines. So you have the atolls, which are very low-lying, largely reefs, and they never get more than a few feet above sea level. And then you have the real big volcanic, the tall mountainous type islands. Mm. A few feet above sea level. Just to be clear, you said that we're going to get a few feet of sea level rise by 2050. Yeah. So that means that those atolls will be... Yeah, yeah. A lot of those, a lot of them already are. Because they were so heavily mined during World War II and mm. the big bases on them, um, like bauxite is is real big in the South Pacific. There are literally countries that have been mined out of existence. The oh island no longer exists because the mines were so big. They just they took the island. Right, and they sink. They sink. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So right, so, so so Fiji has uh, the the country of Fiji has over three hundred islands in it, and a majority of these are fairly mountainous volcanic islands. So Fiji actually has a fair amount of elevation, which is very helpful. There are currently multiple island nations that have lost their original islands and have relocated to Fiji to uninhabited islands. Hmm. So sometimes when wow. you're when you're going to a different island in Fiji, all of a sudden the people look just a little bit different and they speak a language that you they're they're literally a, a whole island that just picked up and moved to Fiji, and the wow. Fijian government has been fairly accommodating. Um, they've also had to move a lot of their villages higher up the mountainside, but that's that's not a, a huge. The level of infrastructure in a lot of areas isn't very high, so it's pretty easy to move um, villages. But mm-hmm. but yeah, so Fiji has actually uh, become uh, a safe space huh. for a lot of countries. Yeah. Wow. So so these countries that are moving to Fiji. Are they countries that, you know, are are like established and recognized um, kind of like by the UN? They have their own flag or are they countries that more they, they kind of they have their own so- sovereignty, but they are internationally recognized as part of Fiji? It's more ethnic groups there. Okay. I'm not sure there's there's a lot of the South Pacific is just so complex and so vast. You know, I was down mm-hmm. there for 27 months and I. I still like was learning about new islands that I never knew existed and right. they have completely different languages and ethnicities and 
they're kind of a part of this country, but also kind of a part of that country. And Hmm. it's kind of, you know, they might be a part of this country, but that country is never like collected taxes or anything. So, so, so did you, did you travel to any of these places or no, I I mostly just traveled around the Fijian islands, the the, the 300 islands. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of what I I was getting. I, I hit about 20 to 30 maybe. Okay. So, so these island nations are outside of those 300 islands. Yeah, yeah. And those island mostly. nations are are no longer habitable, so they've moved mm-hmm. to some of the more emptier mm-hmm. islands among the 300. Yeah, yeah. And I'd have to, like, check to get the exact names of the the, the country, mm-hmm. you know, the, the people that moved. But, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a sad state. You know, they're having to leave their homes. Yeah. And, you know, Fiji is fairly accommodating, but... But Fiji is vulnerable. Fiji's very vulnerable as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what local customs of Fiji do you do you remember with uh, that that kind of I don't know that kind of uh, you know struck your heart? <laughs> I I spent a couple of years in Korea. Not the same thing, but like there were certain customs that uh, that that were different that kind of jumped out to me like i like you always pour pour your the other person's drink mm-hmm. you know the bowing instead of the the shaking of the hands um little little things like that i guess sit, you know sitting on the floor you know the heat coming from from below uh kimchi what are just some local because I, I you know myself and i imagine most of our listeners know really nothing about fiji other than um that's where jim carrey's love interest went off to in the truman show um, so really, <laughs> is there a little, little nugget about Fiji you can, uh, share with us? Something that always struck me and it kind of has some influence today is how much importance the Fijians put on family mm. and how that translates to the rest of the the culture there the villages are there's no roads in the villages they're all um pathways between different houses and all of the houses are most of the houses are pretty open plan so there's there's minimal um walls within the house and the doors are always open so I always kind of viewed a Fijian village as one massive house with little walkways to each of the individual rooms. And so you could just, uh, and whole, so in, in Fijian, um, language that's called the Matangali. It's Uh like the extended clan. Okay. Um, Matangali. So you would have an entire Matangali would like have half of a village or a third or whatever. And, they like when you grew up you either built a new house which is a pretty easy proposition just just i mean the houses are very simple or you you moved into you know a house that was you know a a relatives or something like that Mm -hmm. but everything is is very much built you know there's there's no there's, there's there's it's really hard to create divisions in the in the village lifestyle right. like that, literally, um, you know, no walls, no yeah, locked doors. Yeah, and then every night people get together and um, they just talk and hang out. And the, there's a community, there's a, a village hall in the middle of the village, 
and uh, you know people would come there and just talk, and that that's what you do at the end of the night. Um, hmm. You after you spent the whole day at the farm or working or wherever, and those village halls are just are the center of yeah. you know center of culture. That's cool. Um, it just to end every kind of night just among company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we, it, we really it, don't have that. It all comes down here. to to family and. There's, uh, you know, like I, I was just sense. talking about this the other day. So, like the Eskimos, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's, a, a, you know, a story. Whatever the Eskimos have, like what, uh, fifty different words for snow, okay, something like that. You know, they they I trust you. Yeah, they they can. I mean, are some their language? It's important to know what kinds of snow there are, and that's why they have a whole bunch of words for snow. The mm-hmm. Fijians have over three hundred words for family members. So, like, your second cousin on your mom's side who was born to someone who's younger, like, every exact person has a name. Wow. Yeah, has, a, yeah. has, has a word. And that's because the Fijians put so much um, importance into family. And it's also important to know the hierarchy of that family. Yeah. How did uh, they treat you as someone that you know, is a foreigner? So, yeah, that was actually a really interesting um, part of my experience. So when when you're sitting in the village hall, the uh, the honored guests always sit in the front. Um, and, you know, you're not you're kind of like expected to just kind of sit there and, um, you know, if people talk to you, you can talk. But it's it's kind of more of like a, the honored guest sits really like formally in the front. And then everyone else who's there just to like hang out, they kind of like sneak into the back and sit down with their back against the wall. And that way they can like chat and share candies or, you know, just kind of like it's much more relaxed in the back. Mm-hmm. So my first year, I would always walk in. I tried to like sneak into the back of the room because <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. didn't want to sit in the front and have to like sit there really straight back and not have anything to like, you know, right. not be able to talk much. But every time for the first year, they would like push me. No, 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 no. You're in the front. You're in the front. I'm like, man uh finally like it just happened organically in my second year i like snuck in went to the back and they like didn't stop me and so i got to like chill in the back and sit and it was like it was the greatest <laughs> thing ever because i was like oh my god they can actually like talk and hang out and yeah. we were like throwing little candies back and forth at each other and you could like yeah it was just a much more relaxed atmosphere so wow. so yeah it took about a year did they speak english yeah, Fijian, it's an English, you know, old English colony. Yeah. Um, all education is done in English and most business, government work. Yeah. Um, so Fiji, the Fijian language has uh, 200, or no, it has 14 dialects and 200 sub-dialects. So the Fijian language is all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Only about 60% of the population is Fijian. 40% of the population is actually Indian. The British, even though they swore off slavery, they still needed people to work their colonial plantations. So a process called blackbirding, they would tell laborers in India, oh, we need people to work this farm in Fiji. It's just an island over the horizon. Don't worry. You can come back and visit your family anytime. Once they were loaded onto the ships, they were sailed halfway around the world to Fiji and told the price of your trip was so much that you need to work five years to pay it off. 
and then you need to work another five years to pay off your return. So basically it was, it was uh, they were lied into a 10 year long indentured servitude. Um, and that's how the British government managed to find laborers to work their sugar plantations in Fiji. Wow. Yeah. It's so story. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's pretty, and so the it's conditions 40% like ethnically Indian right now. Fiji. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? So, so is, I mean, I was going to ask my next question was like, what foods do you eat? Uh, do they, I mean, that's, is it a big Indian influence then mm-hmm. or is it? Oh yeah. 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 Even the Fijians cook and eat Indian food all the time now. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think it, it's a possibility then that you know, like when, you know, as this, as the sea rises and, and, uh, Fiji has to perform its manager retreat, would they be accepted in India? I, I don't think, so. I don't think, I don't think the Fijians would, and even the Indians, many of them have no ties to India anymore. Um, mm-hmm. the, the conditions of the sugar plantations were pretty horrendous mm-hmm. and the entire, um, Indian caste system, okay. which is, is still prevalent in India to this day was completely broken down. People from, uh, different parts of India who couldn't speak the same language were all thrown into these plantations mm-hmm. and treated pretty, pretty terribly. Um, yeah. to the point now that people in Fiji have no, no ties to the subcontinent. Mm, okay. Yeah. So my next, my question was going to be, um, that when, when Fiji has, you know, would have to leave, um, what, kind of aspect of their culture um i to me like that's what's concerning about a lot of these island nations that that might have to um, evacuate is you know the people might survive in another country but you know and but but the culture is Mm -hmm. is sort of like what is at risk Mm -hmm. um you know even with, with the second generation you know a lot of culture disappears um uh, so yeah, I guess, I don't know. Our, uh, Cult- cultures disappear, yeah. but cultures also can influence, can, can grow. Sure. And, yeah. You yeah. know, right now the, yeah. So, like Philadelphia is beautiful at that. Like there's a whole, there's a whole, um, yeah. E- uh, Ethiopian enclave, like right mm-hmm. here in West Philadelphia, a bunch of restaurants. Yeah. Um, and, and the Indians and in, in Fiji have their own distinct culture now, which is very different than what's on what's in India. Mm-hmm. The, they've created something which, um, which works, which works well. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, cultures, but like animals, cultures can also become extinct. They can. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is, which is sad yeah. because I mean that it's kind of beautiful that everyone in their whole, the whole fa- extend family has their own name, mm-hmm. you know, two second cousins on opposite sides mm-hmm. have a different name. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just, I, I wonder, yeah. does that exist in another culture? And if not, will that, will that be phased out of existence in 50 years? I, I, I'm not sure. And I, you know, I hope we can, we can save what we can, but what's your, talking about i think gets to a kind of a larger picture and this is getting back to the whole adaptation mitigation resilience Mm. you know conversation yeah this is is, quite a digression (laughs) yeah yeah so so when you're when you're looking at you know managed retreat and adapting to climate change to me it's really important to separate out your priorities 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you want the world to stay how it is, how it exactly is during this short period of time where humanity became prevalent. I mean, the past 10,000 years in the geologic time, it's not even worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have problems. You know, the, the current trend is to call this geologic age the Anthropocene because it's mm-hmm. when humanity has influenced the geologic processes of the earth. But we're not an, an, a scene, I guess you could say, an Anthropocene. We're, like Anthropocene implies these, these geologic timescales are hundreds of millions of years, right. and calling us the Anthropocene is giving us an inflated sense of our own importance. Yeah, we're more like a single catastrophic event. <laughs> right, exactly. And so, you know, people with yeah. climate adaptation, they have this, once you separate out you know preserving the world exactly as it is right now but instead allowing the world to adapt and change around us then climate change adaptation becomes an entirely different ballgame and with cultures with languages with you know all these different things if you get too tied to the status quo and you don't look at how things can evolve and change over time with the climate then we're going to run into even more problems farther down the road. We have to create a situation where um, mm-hmm. the climate adapts to, you know, what, you know, the, right now the climate is adapting to all the carbon we're putting into the atmosphere. We need to ad- learn to adapt as well. And if we seek to preserve, like we're in a museum, all of the cultures, languages, and cities of the world, then we're just going to be stuck in a situation where we're facing impossible questions so for me i don't look at adaptation as this you know we have to save everything i look at adaptation as we have to learn how to to adapt and live um so i think what's what's scary for for people and this is when i expose myself as a bit of a of a luddite um in some ways and an anti-technocrat i suppose if you will was that is that um it seems to a lot of people that we are adapting or not adapting, but changing so fast that the rate, like the world that we live in now is mm-hmm. not the world that we thought we would live in when we were 10 years old. Mm, yeah. Like we just can, did not picture. You know, I grew up thinking, you know, I'm going to, obviously I'm going to live like, you know, my father, you know, I'm going to work this job, live in this house and in the suburbs, drive a car, everything will be you know, handy dandy, <laughs> you know, maybe I'll, uh, I'll institute a, you can't talk on the phone because we're going to use the computer from, you know, eight to nine at night. <laughs> right. Um, you know, uh, slap the TV broadside across the, the face so that it could get reception better. You know, all, all these things like we kind of, we, we study uh, to think that th- this is what life is and life kind of just changes before your eyes, but it changes so fast. But I do think in some, some older, you know, before industrialization say or or at you know there was a point where that could be true often like you could follow in the footsteps of your father you know your father was a uh you know a soldier or a coal miner or a shoemaker or whatever and you could kind of do the same thing um and i think what people sense now is that the world i mean the world has always changed but it's accelerating now to the point that it's it's changing so fast and cl- climate adaptation, I completely agree with, but like the whole, the whole idea of like, we have to change, we have to change, like, yes, we have to change, but we also, the 
what the change, the the innovation that we've we've done is also what's causing this need to change. And at some point, at, at what point is it kind of like we are digging our, you know, we are our own grave. We are kind of like, the, you know, the more we um, scratch the itch, the more it itches. And that's what kind of this, uh, you know, quote unquote innovation is like at some point, do we just need to pump the brakes, you know, and that blasting the gas in the accelerator is not what's going to, you know, save the car in a sense. Um, you know, there's a lot of scary things out there. You know, genetic engineering, people are talking about gene drives, like genetic engineers, genetic engineering, whole species of mosquitoes and rats to like eliminate diseases, which is this good and noble cause. And they said like, oh, it'll eliminate pesticides, which could have other environmental benefits. But, you know, we, we don't know what, what can of worms mm-hmm. we're opening. Yeah. Yeah. The, the concept of Pandora's box is. I think, I think really prevalent because every action we take, I mean, physics, every action has a reaction, Mm -hmm. you know, in the past 50 years, we've, uh, seen tremendous declines in, um, you know, maternal mortality and, uh, you know, intergenerational extreme poverty in the developing world. And the, the number of people who die every year from, you know, a huge variety of diseases, polio and, um, stuff like that. And, we have made tremendous advances to improving the quality of life for billions of people around the, around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but there is, there is a cost to that. And so now we have to create new, new things to adapt to that cost. And, you know, whether or not it's, it was worth having billions of people live short, miserable lives, uh, you know, to stave off climate change. I, I don't know if that's a, that's a philosophical question that I'm not sure, you know, getting into. Um, but well, I, what do you mean? Have... Well, the, the, the development of the, uh, you know, formerly known as third world countries, but now, you know, developing countries that, that has caused millions of people to be lifted out of poverty. Right. It has caused huge advances in health and in, um, you know, democracy and, and just quality of life standards for billions of people around the world have been improved because of the developments of the modern age. But at the same time, that development also has environmental impacts, which we're, you know, knew about many years ago, but we're just now starting to deal with the initial causes of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether those environmental impacts were worth the improved lives of billions of people, like I said, I don't know. That, that's a very hard question to, to get into. Yeah. I, I think that there are, you know, there are things that need to be balanced out 100%. Um, you know, we need, to, we need to balance out how our governments regulate climate change mm-hmm. or regulate, you know, the environmental impacts of the economies that they are um, going after. We need to, we need to balance out the the economic system that we've created to Mm -hmm. that is a tremendous vehicle for delivering uh amazing results around the world we need to balance out its impacts so that we have a world for tomorrow as well Mm -hmm. um it's like there's this balance we need to strike between the tremendous uh need to change and but also mm -hmm. a tremendous need to pump the brakes yeah yeah i mean 
you you could look at it that way. I you know I think you mentioned one time we were getting drinks. The the book the Prophet and the Wizard. Yeah, right, right. Wizard and the Prophet. Yeah, yeah, Charles yeah. Mann. And how and how you know technology has the power to save our lives. It also has the power to destroy it. And you know the the wizard in those books. I. I Mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing here and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but you know, the wizard believes in the power of technology to, to solve our problems. Right. And you know, the, the problem is you can create different problems with, with your technology. There's no way anybody can see all of right. the impacts of their decisions. Like for example, like one innovation would be carbon sequestration. Like, wouldn't that be great if we could just like suck out the carbon from the atmosphere and stop global warming? Well, what that means is that we will also keep burning coal and we'll keep polluting the mm-hmm. environment and we'll still, you know, kill all the birds or whatnot, you know? Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's the fear. Like that if, if with carbon sequestration, we have this, we have justified the status quo. Well, the status quo is also causing mm-hmm. these other kind of problems, but at the same time, the most pressing problem, which is the CO2 gets addressed. These are very difficult questions so yeah yeah i am i'm a very big proponent of um of of getting people in government who don't just view climate change as a battle between the regulators and the deregulators mm-hmm. but viewing it as uh, a battle for like our our way of life and how we can create that balance between our way of life and a sustainable world. Right. Right. A vision. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's kind of, it's like, do we want carbon sequestration to be a part of the vision? Do we want nuclear to be a part of the vision? And mm-hmm. once you establish that consensus among you know, the public and private sector and, or every, everybody that, that has uh, agency, um, you know, then you can kind of work on the nitty gritty of the how and how much to regulate or to, to deregulate. But, and then of course there's the the question of, you know, you know, who has the agency, right? Like how do we, how do we, you know, empower, empower the people as well and still, you know, have consensus be a kind of realistic possibility. Yeah. And I, I think regulations obviously have to be a part of any situation, but a really kind of, when I personally think about this, I try and get away from the regulatory viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So right. the the current biggest pushback against climate change, the science is usually fairly well accepted, but people push back because they view climate change as a vehicle for governments to increase their regulatory powers. So when climate mm-hmm. change... Um, professionals people who like work in this field when they talk about increasing regulations they're technically right but they are speaking directly to the fears of the people who are opposed to climate change policies Mm -hmm. um, increasing the power of the regulatory state and so you need to create a, a system where the people who are nervous about the increased power of government which is 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 accurate i mean yeah, sure. You know, back in after September 11th, when the Patriot Act and everyone was terrified of government surveillance, you think those are 
if if government had full power to address climate change, that would impact every part of our lives. So, oh, yeah. you know, having fear of government regulation isn't something that people should be, you know, criticized for. But yeah, we no, need to we need to create a system where the the climate change, you know, professionals and advocates and the climate change deniers can can work together and it's not just a purely regulatory response. Right. And a perfect example of that is just kind of redirecting subsidies away from the fossil fuel industry and to renewables. Like that's not regulation that's investing in the market, but it's just kind of redirecting these sources. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a a myriad of examples. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. we, we don't quite have the leadership that's creative enough to, to move down those pathways yet. Which I'm fingers crossed. Hopefully, with all. There's a just a a point you had made earlier that I just want to want to address before moving on about um, population and how uh, you know uh, you said like lives of of billions of people have been uh, improved as this century we've gone up from from one billion to nine billion. You know, I, I I've read this this book that we've we've talked a bunch on the podcast, The Sapiens Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Keep, bring it up. It's on everyone's uh, Christmas book list, highly recommended. But he was kind of making the case that you can't conflate population growth with um, an improved quality of life. Because if you actually look at it like chickens, the population of chickens and cows has increased dramatically as well. But you wouldn't necessarily say their quality of life has been improved. A lot of the, um, the population growth among people, like you could just make the case that there's not, it's not that there's billions of more people, but there's billions of more kind of people who live in, in, uh, difficult conditions. Um, so I, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a, I, and I don't want to be a judge. I don't want to judge what quality of life is. I'm just saying that you, that I, we don't, we don't want to conflate, um, population growth with improved quality of life. Yeah, no, of course. And I, I actually wasn't really talking about population growth as much, but the quality of life has measurably improved around the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's certainly lifespan. Yeah, lifespan. Like, Yeah, I guess that's the question. Like, how do you measure quality of life? I mean, the, is, the like, is lifespan even the percentage of people in uh, extreme poverty, the number of women who die giving birth every year, Mm-hmm. the the level the nutritional levels the the number of people who have access to you know medicine and internet and electricity and stuff like that yeah yeah all those all those metrics have gone up over the past few decades uh, that's good um it's gone up as the population mm-hmm. has gone up so yeah. as also like the percentage of people with these gone up or is it yeah. just the raw number of people no the percentage the percentage, the percentage well. of the population yeah. So that takes into account population increase. Yeah. I mean, the, the but it, it's also the raw numbers of people that don't have those things have also gone up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it raises some interesting questions when you think about how, you know, when it, one of his points yeah. in this book is that we did not domesticate wheat. Wheat domesticated us in that sense. Like, like the wheat is now grown everywhere and it was just some small mm-hmm. crop that was grown in the middle East. Um, uh, yeah, I'd be interested to read read the book. Um, I mean, but when talking about population and climate change, that's that's a very slippery slope to one of the the less 
appealing aspects of climate change, uh, you know, mitigation adaptation, which is, you know, people who talk about, well, we wouldn't have such a big problem if there weren't so many people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that argument is incredibly problematic. Um, and it, it's not really factually accurate as well. Um, yeah. no, I agree with that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, one of my big takeaways from living in Korea, which is, you know, it's a country the size of Maine with 50 million people, super dense. Seoul has their economy, talk about quality of life, like their, their economy has grown from being uh, the, the, the last in GDP after the Korean war to now it's, I think it's, was number 13 by the time I was, I was there five years ago and parasite is going to go win an Oscar. And it's, like culturally it's uh economically it's as relevant as any country um there is and they don't have a ton of natural resources very it's um mountainous um rivers so they don't really have like land to graze cattle they don't have a ton of like arid cropland but they just like it's it's the people it's the um it's technology and it's um, it's, it's density, it's, um, community, it's living together. Um, I mean, and with all that density, they're very, they're organized, amazing public transit, mm-hmm. um, incredibly yeah. clean, um, composting all the time, um, recycling, uh, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, so like that was inspiring and that's what eventually got me into city planning, just kind of seeing that, cool. how you can have this density and also this, this, um, this like efficient harmony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, that's, that's, what that's a great example. Me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, we'll do, do one more climate change fact and I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too long. I know, uh, well you're on holiday vacation, but, uh, <laughs> um, I'll do another climate change fact. We'll see where, where it goes. And then, uh, yeah. So did you know miles, that earlier this year, because we're wrapping up 2019, so yeah. this is kind of a, a year in review. Did you know that the first mammal became extinct due directly to climate change in 2019? I don't think that, I knew that. No. Yeah, no, that yeah. that mammal. So this is it's due to sea level rise because that's really gotcha. the the only thing we can kind of directly relate to mm-hmm. climate change extinction at this point yeah of course like human yeah. intervention i mean we we're responsible for for all the great fauna of the americas becoming extinct yeah. right but, um but uh in 2009 19 2019 the bramble k melamy i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right a rodent that lived on a small island off the coast of australia became the first mammal to go extinct due to sea level rise Earlier yeah. this year. That's sad. Yeah. The first mammal. It's historic. It's a historic year. Yeah. Yeah. It's a small island about, I think, two feet above sea level. So not too different from the islands that the people um, outside of Fiji fled uh, to return. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, we, we no, evolved from the, from rodents. and I'm just having this mental image of these cute little mice in a burrow <laughs> drowning, and it's very sad. <laughs> you know, mice can swim. I, Did you know? Did you know I so, didn't know here's that. Another fact. All mammals can swim. All, every single mammal can wow. swim. 
Or can learn to swim. Can swim. Well, humans, you know, you have to learn. It's a process. Yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, do learn. Yeah. Can yeah. Learn yeah. No, swim. they're capable of swimming. Like if you throw a, ma- a mouse in a pool, it'll swim to the surface. But All if right. you throw a baby that hasn't learned how to swim into a pool, it's going to drown. Yeah. Yeah. It's. it's yeah. It's. <laughs> why we have fences and stuff um so i got water weights i'm just i'm just imagining this like poor mouse trying to swim to australia and it's like off in the distance and they can't make it <laughs> drowning in this straits of malacca or whatever it's a sour it's a very sad sour note i, I want to give another um another fact because we this is sort of related to population but you know miles that that 15 percent of all human beings to have ever lived on earth are alive right now Wow. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, the scale, we we were only in the, like, what, a few hundred million maybe max during the 90% of human existence. And then just in the past, you know, century, we've exploded to nine point yeah. something billion. Um, so the, the Anthropocene, really, it's not 10,000 years. The Anthropocene is like since Seinfeld. <laughs> Well, no, humans have been impacting the environment yeah, for 10,000 yeah, no, years. That's, yeah. that's true. Obviously, yeah. that's very, that's, of course, yeah. that's true. I'm exaggerating. But, but like, 15% is not insignificant. And yeah. we're alive right now. Yeah. I mean, and just, just to tie back to how humans, the, you know, and this is my fact to you. What is the... I've been waiting for this. What is the... What action have humans done which has had the most impact on the environment? Um, well, I'm going to say agriculture. It's agriculture. Yeah. Well, why, why is that? For 10,000 years, humans have been cutting down forests and, uh, planting these, uh, you know, planting farms. And that has had more of an impact on the amount of just trees sequester carbon. So when you cut down trees, you're not only releasing that carbon back into the air when you burn the tree, but you're reducing potential sequestration. So, um, that in of itself has had a bigger impact on the environment than anything else. Even to the point that when the first European explorers came to the North America and they started killing off the Indian population due to disease and stuff, the lack of the Indians cultivating their agriculture and the trees that grew up in that place contributed to the mini ice age that hit Europe in the 1700s. Because there weren't enough Indians cultivating their agriculture fields and all the trees grew up to replace it. That massive increase in trees on abandoned agriculture field sequestered so much carbon that it put the earth into a mini ice age. Wait a minute. Wait, why was the the agriculture fields were abandoned? Because so many Indians died due to like the smallpox blankets that Columbus, you know, that's one example. But the the diseases of the Indians... Wow. among the Indians caused such a population reduction that they were no longer able to practice agriculture throughout much of North America. Yeah. And so all their fields went um, abandoned and the trees that grew up sequestered so much carbon. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was, it was a factor, but yeah, yeah, that was one of the major factors for the mini ice age. Also, if you think about some of the, the crops, um, hmm. yeah, the, 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 the agricultural crops really don't, sequester too much carbon they're they're not too leafy like corn potatoes yeah no 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. They're doing that to the uh, the Amazon right now. Burned it down. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I'm not sure there's any good news coming out of the Amazon right now. And it's just one of those really sad stories where. Well, they're moving into Hudson Yards. Oh, a different wrong Amazon. Sorry. Oh, okay. Oh, I, that was a fun. So I, was, I, I completely missed that. I that was, was like, what? Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, I completely missed that. That's... All right. So on a, on a positive note. Yeah. Um, from your experience fighting fires in California. Yeah. Just describe like that first time you saw a redwood tree and just like what it felt like. Just the, the, the raw power yeah. of those trees. I mean, they're just, I remember the first time I, it was, it was like a cinematic Hollywood moment. I literally there, a snowstorm had come through the night before and it was still misty and it was so it was quiet and there was like a little bit of mist and just uh, walking the general grant trail and you just came around and just like it was there and it was just this like massive pillar um going up as far as going up into the clouds you couldn't see the top of it and it was just this like yeah a crazy moment for sure um i've only seen one on fire once a uh, lightning hit the top of it so it hit the top, blew the top off and lit the tree on fire. Um, because redwoods aren't really susceptible to, to fires. It, it takes a lot to burn them. Um, but yeah, no, it was just this, they're just amazing trees. Yeah. Miles Owings. Thank you for that story. Yeah. Listeners, this has been climate change therapy. Miles, uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Yes, thank you so much. For having uh, me. Ending with that beautiful image, of, uh, redwood, uh, staving off wildfire. Yeah.